Welcome to Very Honored Frater BT's Esoterra Nerd Podcast, Episode 81, in which Lindsay Kimura and I interview Wiz Garber. But first, Transformation and Footnotes. This is the segment in which I read my father's book, Transformations. And then in the footnotes, I talk a little bit about what I just read. Transformations by John Dan Reed. Chapter 2, verse 19. Some more stuck ones came by this night. You and I both know them. They asked questions of others here, and chatted and played Ain't It Awful. A couple of them, toward eleven o'clock by their time, noticed yawning and aliveness. For a moment, they even saw the night bird. I messaged with them. You've watched these things happen many times before. Messaging with them is just like messaging with the others, except that they aren't awake to it in the flesh place. Ah, skybird, nightbird, Dayhawk soaring in figure eights. The game is so serious to those who won't wake up. Sometimes also, those who won't wake up become frivolous and supercilious, resisting their serious positions. You and I know that this amounts to the same thing as being serious, don't we? And now for the footnotes. Playing Ain't It Awful is a direct reference to Eric Burney's games People Play, which defined transactional analysis. Yawning and aliveness. Breath is the evidence of life. It's interesting how he talks about seriousness being a form of being asleep, and bouncing back and forth between serious and frivolous and supercilious, all being forms of sleep. This message and this information that Wiz has to share in this episode, I would encourage you, and I've never actually said this in an intro to an interview, I know that sometimes people skip certain ones that they seem that, oh, I'll listen to a minute or two and see if I'm interested. Hang on with this one. I, I, I really, uh, you're going to want to hear the whole thing. That's That's all I'm saying. Today, Lindsay and I had the honor and privilege of sitting down with Wiz Garber and hearing a very special story. But first, let's check in with our co-host for today's episode, Lindsay Kimura. Good evening, Edward. Hello, how are you? I'm well, how about you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for co-hosting today. Of course, of course. I am honored. For those who aren't familiar with the To Be a Yogi podcast, it's a good podcast. It's uh, I, I like to call it the Other Esoteric Nerd Podcast. Lindsay is co-host of the past few episodes. The person we're interviewing today, Wiz Garber, is, I understand he's your grand teacher? I guess you could say that. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, I have been studying with Naha, we met in 2015, and Wiz is one of Naha's teachers. So 
I guess if you were to trace it, it would seem to be that. He's part of your lineage. <laughs> yes, yes. And when I had first wrote you as my fellow Crunch employee and invited you to the Esoteric Nerd podcast, you saw Wiz Garber's name and recognized it from Naha. Yes, that was one of a few that I recognized, so um, that one definitely stood out. You know, it's so funny, Edward. I'm looking back to when I first met Naha, and I think I very first met her March of 2015, so like two years ago. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, Wiz Garber gave a lecture at the House of Intuition on Sunset Boulevard uh, in Silver Lake, right? Or is that Echo Park? Yeah, there's one in Echo Park. Um, it's the one on Sunset. Right. That's the. Is that the Echo Park one? No, I think that's Silver Echo Lake. Park. Yes, I think this one is just considered the Sunset location. Right. So that's the one where primarily where Naha teaches. Yes, that's where the Temple of Intuition is. And the oh House of Intuition TV. They wanted us to mention Wiz Garber is also. Uh, he has recorded some classes that are available, and you can get there by going to the URL, hoi.tv. Yes. So that's yeah. good. Uh, but you were away, um, so you were unable to attend the class. You were out of town um, bringing pole fitness into the mainstream by way of the Arnold. Well, continuing to, to do that on an ongoing mission. Yes, it was our fourth year there, so we held our championship, amateur and pro. We did a bunch of demos and pretty much integrated our sport within the other sports, uh, which is over 50 at the Arnold Sports Festival in Columbus. Nice. And among other things, Lindsay is my pole teacher. Yes. I'm a regular yeah. student. Yes, and you're doing very well. I remember we, I think one of the first episodes I co-hosted, you were just starting out in and the I, pole. And I was talking about how much I sucked. <laughs> yes, and now you can climb to the top and yep. do a bunch of tricks and space. <laughs> You're doing well. So I brought the class to you uh, by way of this interview. I know. I felt so honored. And just for the audience that's listening, I originally told Edward, no, I'm not available because I didn't think I was qualified uh, to interview a whiz and um, yeah but I'm so grateful and honored and just really really touched by what I heard just the the experience of hearing the story firsthand was yeah. really really touching and meaningful so um, I'm really grateful for you um, for kind of pushing that along and Talking making it, it happen <laughs> yes yes nice well, I suppose then, um, now that we've built it up a bit and kind of explained a little bit of the context here, then we can uh, go on and say, let's get to that interview, shall we? Let's do it. Welcome back to the Esoterra Nerd Podcast, Fratter. Uh, happy to be here again. You guys are set up with your tea. Uh huh. If the cats try to get involved, I have rose water spray. Nice. <laughs> I had the honor and privilege of attending your lecture the other day. You were there in the room during the famous apology that we all saw on our social media news feeds, and I just wanna I just wanna say thank you for for being here and for agreeing to come on the podcast. And and would you please do us the honor of. Um, telling us the story again 
uh, of, of the path that led you to this particular path of the Lakota and uh, what led you to that room? Hmm. What led me to that room? Spirit led me to that room. Trusting in spirit. Yeah. Um, and learning how to listen to spirit. Because spirit's around all the time, and most of us ignore it. Yeah. Or we don't have the ears to hear or the eyes to see, right? And so it takes a while to develop those skills. And I've been working on that for a while. And in the last year, it's just really seemed to click. Um, hmm. I went three times, three visits to Standing Rock. I had no clue or plan that I was going to do that. What happened is um, a fr good friend of mine from the festival scene in Seattle wanted to go to Standing Rock to help the uh, water protectors. They had... Um, these uh, lodges that they wanted to build for the people there to, to provide shelter. Mm -hmm. And they're basically a, um, a white man's version of the teepee. It's the same design, only it's constructed from materials that you can buy in a hardware store. Right. Tarpies? Yeah. The, the natives dubbed them tarpies <laughs> because they... They are made with a plastic tarp that wraps around the outside of it. Uh, the very top of it is a circular, it's a three-foot diameter circle made of, uh, cut out of plywood, three-quarter inch plywood with a hole right in the middle. Then you take a wood stove and you have a wood stove inside with the chimney goes right out the middle of that wood uh, circle. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you don't have a, it open at the top like a teepee is. And uh, the the native people were very skeptical about these tarpies. They didn't think that they would hold up to the fierce North Dakota winds, and they didn't think that they'd be very warm once it gets very cold there. I mean, the winters in North Dakota are brutal. Yeah. And um, we, no one had tested out these lodges through a, a brutal winter. It was just the brain child of a, a, a guy named Paul Wagner, who's a native that lives, he's a Salish Indian who lives out near Seattle. And it was his idea to build these. The, he, the idea came to him, but he of course had never tested them through a winter. So this was just an act of faith that yeah. these things were going to actually work. And there was a big GoFundMe uh, created where people could contribute money uh, that would go to building more of these tarpies and providing the wood stoves. The wood stoves were made of 30-gallon uh, oil drums with a kit that attaches the legs and the chimney to them. Mm -hmm. So people would contribute to that, and then the wood stoves would be assembled and built, prepared in Seattle, and then some of the materials for the tarpies would be prepared in Seattle, 
and then a, a, a truck was donated to drive them all to, uh, to Standing Rock. My friend had gone to Standing Rock and she built the very first tarpy there in a forward camp that they had, that the, the tribe was trying to reclaim some of their um, uh, treaty lands. Right. There were, there were two treaties, one in, 18, in the 1850s and another one in the 1860s. Their original lands given to them by the U.S. government spread from Omaha, Nebraska, all the way to Canada. And then in the 1860s, I think it was uh, at that time Colonel Custer. He, uh, white people, discovered gold in the Black Hills, mm-hmm. and so Colonel Custer was instrumental in the new treaty, which took those lands away from the tribe uh, later to become General Custer and he got his but uh, the um, uh, where am I here so the, the, my friend was trying to uh, establish a camp on the treaty land which the US government now claims and the, so they, they erected the first tarpy there, and she'd only been there a few days, I guess, and that was when the state and the local militarized police decided that they were going to move in and push them back from this forward camp. So they, they arrived um, with... I don't know, hundreds of militarized police carrying automatic weapons and Humvees and armored carriers. And they pushed through the the activists, the protesters, pushed them all back. But there was a group of elderly women who were who were praying right there on the line on the road there with a pipe. And it was a circle. There were probably seven or eight elderly women in their 70s or 80s even and the police pushed the activists back away from these people my friend was trying to help protect these women Uh they arrested all of these elderly women they they treated them pretty brutally they they you know put their arms behind their backs and handcuffed them threw them down to the ground searched them took their their sacred items the the abalone shells the the pipes threw them down on the ground disrespected them um, and my friend got arrested with them then her whole story of of the arrest and the way that these people were treated didn't come to light until after they were bailed out which was like four or five days later and it turned out that they were uh, sent to uh, various jails throughout the Dakotas because there wasn't a whole lot of room in jail in the jails for all the, the people that they were arresting. They right. arrested something like seventy people that day, I think. Oh my God! And uh, they they used magic marker and put numbers. They num- gave numbers to each person on their arms. It was it was like. It was like the Jews being treated yeah. during during the Holocaust, yeah. you know, 
and they, I think it said on their arms too what the charges were. They charged each of these people with a class A felony plus some misdemeanors. The main felony was uh, inciting a riot, I guess, but it's a felony charge. Um, these these women who were praying, they were charged with rioting, what? inciting a riot. They were just right? sitting there. Um, the the native women of that group were treated very differently from the Caucasian women, which was just outrageous to me. And that's part of the culture, I guess, in the Dakotas. They're used to treating these people as second-class citizens, mm-hmm. and that has to change. That was that was just the part that really set me off. And it was like, I have to go. I have yeah. to do my part, yeah. right? So... But you had a history already with this <clears throat> type of um, religion that they practice. Yeah, right? the Nat- Native American spirituality. In 1991 is when I first got involved with that. Um, I was studying with a Wiccan priestess. Um, she was teaching me those ways, and part of her practice was Native American spirituality, Lakota spirituality. This was back east. I was living in Washington, D.C., and uh, she was in Baltimore. There was a a Lakota medicine man who lived in Baltimore. He had land in Baltimore, a farm, and he had a sweat lodge on that farm, and he would do the sun dances in the summer. He had learned from his teacher was Bill Eaglefeather, on the, I think it was the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. He would go to South Dakota and Sundance, and he learned from his teacher, who's well known. He was, uh, he, I think Bill Eaglefeather worked with Frank Foolscrow. In fact, Frank Foolscrow was the ceremonial chief of the Lakota. That was the book you were showing us. What was the name of that book? That book is called Wisdom and Power. I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been like... I won't say it's been my Bible, but it's been something that I've carried around for 25 years now. So I did ceremony with him. Uh, his name was Henry Nisi. He's he's a fairly well-known and respected Lakota medicine person. I think he, he had some native blood, although it wasn't Lakota, from what I understand, but the ceremony that I did with him was a Yuweepi ceremony, which it's a healing ceremony that's not done in a sweat lodge. It's done like in a in a darkened room. They they wrap the medicine man up in a buffalo robe and and tie his hands, tie his feet. It's it's like a Houdini magic trick. The lights are extinguished. He, he makes contact with the spirits. Uh, it's so dark in the room that you start to see spirit lights moving around in the room. Uh, lights come up and he's somehow miraculously gotten out of the, out of his, his, um, the bondage, bond, bound, bondage, you know, and, uh, and the per, and the person who is trying to be healed somehow you know the the spirits have been called to heal that person 
then then there's a pipe ceremony where they pass the pipe around. I remember smoking the pipe for the very first time. Um, and that whole experience just totally resonated with me. I just loved it. I was like, oh, I want more of this. <laughs> this is great. And then I did a sweat lodge with him. That was my very first sweat lodge in 1991. And that was really remarkable, too, because um, I was helping with the fire and... Uh, the uh, I went off in the woods, I guess, and, and had a a spiritual experience in the woods. It 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 was the beginning of a long path, let's say. Yeah. And and what followed was I ended up uh, I had a six month sabbatical until I did a until until I had to do a job. I, I had to kill six months, so I ended up uh, doing a nationwide walkabout, a vision quest, where I just I got on a bus and headed west. Wow. I ended up hiking through the mountains of Montana, which is my home state. And oh, wow. I've always wanted to go to Montana. And I was up on top of mountains uh, just by myself and 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 meeting spirit people, owls and... I had owl experiences. I had a coyote experience. I had uh, I had a a moose experience. Um, it was a vision quest. Typically, the vision quest is something that a medicine man prepares you for, and he takes you up into a, a spot up in the mountains and and leaves you there, and then you're you you fast. And you spend the night, several nights up there all by yourself, and the mm -hmm. spirit's supposed to come to you and, and talk to you and give you signs. You have dreams, and that vision quest kind of sets you on a path because the medicine man will help you interpret the dreams, and you can see what direction you're going to go in, what your spirit guides are going to be, mm -hmm. you know, this sort of thing. So I sort of did my own. It's called the Homblacia. And uh, I was looking for proof of spirit i you know you know I, like I, a visual form or uh that it really existed you know i wanted to believe but i i wanted substantial existential proof you know yeah um i can relate with that and i was getting i was getting indications of it you know but I wanted proof, and my ego, too, was thinking, you know, I'm entitled. I, I, I deserve, you know, to, uh, to have, like, the best. I deserve to have eagle as my spirit guide. So I was kind of, like, aspiring to that, expecting that that was going to happen. But that's ego. Right. You know? I had to learn a lot of lessons first. Mm -hmm. So spirit had to teach me lessons on this trip. And what was the time frame of the trip? This was back in 1991. And um, I left Montana and I went into Washington State and hiked around. My father lived there at that time. Uh, I went on the Colville Indian Reservation once. Um, and then I hiked around some other places like Blake Island. 
Blake Island was an amazing place because uh, there are deer all over that island. Somehow they swam out to that island at some point and then they, they didn't have any natural enemies. So they're, they're just like, they're prolific there and very tame. And so I would hike out into the middle of the island and these these deer just kind of like accepted me into their tribe and I wandered around with them so deer became one of my spirit guides that way some more owls but no eagles I had I had like I said I had six months to go before I uh, had to get to this job and and the job was in Washington DC I was supposed to be a a manager of this nightclub that was going to open one block away from the White House, wow. which is like the heart of what I call Wachichu land. Wachichu is the Lakota word for the white man. It's a mm-hmm. sort of derogatory word. It's, in, in Lakota, it means he who eats the fat. Mm. It's the greedy person. Wasn't there an um, original meaning that tied into the rock nation as well? Yeah, later on I looked into the word and and it's a word that's older than that, older than the arrival of the white man, and it, and it referred to something that has a lot of like magical superpower. It's a, a very powerful magical person or thing. Mm-hmm. And I think when the white people showed up, they, um, you know, they had the boomsticks and they were very powerful and I think that initially they started to be called that but the Wichichu also has this other connotation about right. being a greed, greedy person the person After that takes they delve takes, further from the surface under yeah. the surface right <laughs> so the Lakota call the white people Wachichus and I lived or and I worked in, in right at the center of Wachichu land which is the White House there so I had to I had to go back and uh, my time was running out. I had like one day before I caught a plane back to the east. I told my dad I wanted to take one more last hike on the Colville Indian res- Reservation before I caught that plane. And so I, I went on that hike and um, there's a mountain there and I climbed a mountain all the way to the top and learned some lessons about one, when you have a goal, when you set a goal, even though things may be difficult, you need to like overcome all of the difficulties to get to that goal. And, and I lived that out through the climb up, up the mountain. I, I, I got tired. I didn't want to go all the way to the top, but I forced myself okay. to go all the way to the top. When I got to the very top of the mountain, uh, I climbed up on top of this big rock that was at the very top and looked down at my feet and there was a crack in the rock right there and right there was this big set of uh, elk antlers and those were the trophy, those were the gift to me for for accomplishing my task. You know, I had set this goal and I, and I did it and, and I was rewarded for that and yeah. I thought, wow, there's a lesson. I thought that was that was my lesson, you know, and okay. and so, I and and all the time I'm I'm learning humility. I'm learning that it's not about ego. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about shedding that ego and and being humble, and and knowing your place in the universe and and nature. I mean, you become a very small person when you're out there. When there are things out there that can kill you, you know, mm-hmm. there are bears and cougars. Um, I ran into a cougar on that 
hike. Uh, and I kind of feared for my life, you know. Right. So I came down off the mountain, and I was going to meet my dad on the beach. He had a boat, and he was going to take me back across the, the lake. And um, I thought, well, that, this, that was my six-month uh, walkabout, my six-month vision quest. These are little lessons, right, that I had learned. And, and I was feeling very humble because I had not been rewarded with this eagle spirit guide. Uh, I guess I wasn't, you know, entitled. I wasn't good enough. And I came all the way down to the beach and turned the corner and I looked down at my feet and there's an eagle feather laying right in the middle of the path. And, I, and of course I got all chills running up and down my spine. I got tears running down my face and it was like... Uh, I, I was, I was like, okay, I believe in you now. <laughs> yeah. I love that story. And, um, so I picked that up and put that in my bag and took it back to the East Coast and, um, told my Wiccan priestess friend about it. I told her the whole story. Or, you know, I had to thank her because she set me on the path. And uh, actually, that Christmas, I gave her that feather. Oh, wow. I gave it away. Yeah. See, the, the, the natives also have a tradition called the giveaway. It's mm-hmm. very important to, to give, give back to your teachers, not to lust after stuff, not to be attached to stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, that was a spirit told me, well, you got that gift. But don't hold on to that too right. much. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> and I gave it back to my teacher. Reminds me of a full circle. Yeah. It makes me think of this rose that I kept once and I um, didn't want it to die or lose its redness. So I covered it with red fingernail polish. And then over the course of years, it um, and green fingernail polish for the, for the stem. And over the course of years, it became dust on the inside like it just completely decomposed and dried out and then one day when I went to grab it it just crumbled in my hands and it just fell apart it was amazing it was it was that was another kind of interesting lesson like I tried to make this rose last forever and this is what happens this is what you're left with yeah we're not like it's not meant to last forever yeah non-attachment yeah sort of jumping ahead you know late fairly recently uh I've been very I've been a student of Hinduism and yoga. Oh, cool. And for about 10 years, the last 10 years, I guess. Um, but again, they teach the same thing. You know, so many of the, the teachings of Hinduism are so similar to the teachings of Lakota. Mm-hmm. So many similarities, including the fact that we, we call them Indians. Mm. You know? Yeah, right. that's interesting. Uh, what, what was the, uh, the white buffalo calf woman? She gave seven gifts. The the Lakota sacred uh, tool for communicating with the spirits and what they call Wakantanka is the the pipe. Uh, sometimes it's called the peace pipe. That's sort of the naive way of calling it. Um, in the movies, you see they, the Indians inviting the white man to come and smoke the peace pipe with right. me. Yeah. 
and they do that, but it's it's much more ceremonial than what you see in the movies. Um, they create a sacred space with that pipe and call in the spirits with it, and then once you're in a sacred space, you pass around the pipe, and each person holds the pipe, and when they when they hold it, then they can they can speak to the spirits directly. And they can pray to the spirits with that pipe. Then it goes on to the next person. Then it goes around again, and this time you smoke it. When you smoke that pipe, the prayers that everybody said while they were holding that pipe then go out to the spirits in the smoke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So that, that was given to the people as a tool about 19 generations ago. However long you think a generation is, I think it's about 30 years. Mm -hmm. So you can do the math about how long ago that was. Let's say, let's say it's, it's 20 generations at 30 years a generation. That's what, 600 years? So the pipe was given to the people about 600 years ago, I guess. Hmm. Interesting. The, the current holder of the, the pipe that was given to the people originally is a, a fellow named Arval Looking Horse. He's the 19th keeper of the pipe bundle. He's, he's in the story. We'll get to him. <laughs> but uh, the, the myth goes that the white buffalo calf woman appeared on the plains to the people. She was a beautiful maiden in her 20s. She uh, was dressed in pure white deerskin. She, she was very pure. Mm -hmm. She had piercing, intelligent black eyes. Um, she came floating across the plains. And two, two braves were out hunting. They saw her coming. One of them thought she was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen, and he was lusting after her. And he treated her disrespectfully. He tried to touch her. He tried to take her. And his friend was like, no, 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 no. Well, because he disrespected her, he turned instantly to dust and bones, and his bones fell on the, on the plains. And his friend was, of course, amazed at that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and knew to totally respect her and treat her right. In, the, in a good way. It's a very civilized and, religion. And so he ran back to the tribe where they were camped and said, this woman is coming, let's prepare for her. So they prepared a teepee, a ceremonial teepee for her. And she arrived, and, and when she arrived, she gave the people the seven rites of the Lakota, the seven ceremonies that they currently practice uh, and, and the main one, of course, is the pipe ceremony that I just described. And you and, mentioned the other one, the wrapping in the buffalo hide? Yeah, the Uweepi. The, um, the, the other main ceremony they, she gave them was the Inipi ceremony, which is the sweat lodge ceremony that you sometimes oh, hear about. Yeah, I did and, one in Mexico last June in Sayulita. Uh -huh. And uh, in, in the Inipi ceremony, the, the pipe 
ceremony also takes place. Okay. So most of the ceremonies incorporate the pipe ceremony. The amazing thing about this, this class that I shared, I don't call it a class where I taught. I, I, I preferred to say that I was just going to sit down and sort of informally share with people what, what I had experienced. Yeah. Um, in previous classes that I've done, they've been very dry and academic. And I loved this one. It was so rich with like the yeah, alchemical sulfur, yeah, as opposed to just uh, salt and mercury. I was I haven't really been that pleased with my previous classes, but this one I decided to change the approach, and and I and I, I thought that I knew what I was going to do. I did an outline even, <laughs> um, but what I did for my class is I. I treated it as ceremony. I started out by banishing the space out and uh, encouraged the spirits to come by burning sweet grass. And I explained that to the people as I did it. And then, and then I did uh, what's called the Lakota Calling Spirits Song with a, with a drum, a native drum. And I called in the spirits with the song. And then when they were with us, then I let myself be what we call a hollow bone I let the spirits speak through me. Mm-hmm. I channeled them in. Mm-hmm. I'm getting chills right now talking about them. Wow. And, and, and just let them do it. And it just seemed to flow spontaneously. And it seemed to work perfectly. Mm-hmm. I thought. Uh, I had two hours, and, and, and we ended right at two hours. I was just amazed at the way it worked. It was really nice. Spirit controlled the timing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I told most of the story the way I wanted to tell it. And uh, uh, what I wanted to do was uh, talk about my trip to Standing Rock, some of the things that I experienced, some of the things that I learned. The main thing that I learned was that you need to trust in spirit. You need to trust that, number one, spirit exists. And number two, that it has plans for you, and and to like just give yourself to it and let it work through you. Yeah. And that seems to work for me. Um, I I just described how I first decided that spirit really exists. And and of course, like anything else, most of us have doubt that arises through our spiritual life. Things happen and we go, oh, spirit really isn't real, or we lose our faith, or, uh, but then you have to find it again. And mm-hmm. um, boy, I just was convinced when, once I went to Standing Rock that boy, it is true, it is real. So, my friend got arrested. I knew that I needed to go. I didn't know how I was going to go. But then, then uh, these people that had all these tarpies and these wood stoves, they offered me the opportunity of driving the truck. So all of a sudden I have the ability to go. I didn't know, I didn't have camping gear. 
I didn't know how I was going to exist once I got there, but I just trusted that it would be okay and just gave myself to the, to the process. And so we picked up um, 40 wood stoves and materials to build tarpies, uh, filled up the truck. We had a, an activist group from um, Seattle. Um, they had a, a bus with 45 activists that wanted to go and, and, and go out on the line and make themselves arrestable, mm-hmm. you know, for the water to protect the water protectors. And so we went in a convoy, uh, the big truck that I had and, and this big bus, and then we had two other vans and we drove straight through 30 hours and we got to the camps uh, and there are multiple camps. Once you get there, the main camp is called the Osseti Sakawin Camp, which uh, was the main Lakota Sioux. Ocheti Sakawin means the seven council fires. There are seven bands of the Lakota tribe, and they haven't really gotten along for the last hundred years. They've never come together and camped together. The last time they camped together was when it was at the Battle of the Little Bighorn when they annihilated General Custer. Mm-hmm. The historical thing about Standing Rock is that the seven councils came together, the seven bands came together and camped together for the first time in over a hundred years. Wow. That's the name, Ocheti Sakawin, the seven council fires. The the way that camp was established was Chief Arville Looking Horse, the keeper of the White Buffalo Calf Pipe. He's the ceremonial chief now. He established a sacred fire. And, and there are various ways they establish camps, I guess, from my understanding. You can establish a warrior camp if you're on the warpath. Mm-hmm. You can establish, and it has to do with the intent of the camp. When you establish the fire, you establish the intent of the camp. Mm-hmm. You can establish uh, a a hunting camp. You're out hunting. Uh, this was a prayer camp. This was a sacred prayer camp. He established the intent of the the whole camp, which was to be peaceful, nonviolent, to to protest the. The Dakota Access Pipeline crossing their lands. They consider it their lands. The U.S. government The original does, treaty. According to the original treaty, yeah. It's one mile away from the, the current border of the reservation. So that's the technicality that the U.S. government is using right. to be able to do it. So as soon as you enter that camp, you're in sacred space. And it's pretty powerful sacred space. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, it's the intent of all of the people that were involved, plus, plus this is the, so close to the source of spirit. You know, you can, you can have a spiritual teacher out here in, in L.A. who may have learned through like three or four generations of people mm-hmm. from that original source. But here we were with the source. Yeah. These are the real people right. who are doing it the right way, exactly. you know. And he mm. he holds the original pipe that's 600 years old, wow. at least, right? So it was a really powerful thing. And in, in that camp, 
they were very pure of intent. You know, there was not supposed to be any weapons in that camp, contrary to what you hear in the media mm. or the propaganda. Um, there were not supposed to be any drugs, no alcohol. Uh, they gave us all an orientation the very first day we were there where they kind of told us what, what the expectations were. You know, it's... Uh, were they pretty welcoming to everybody who oh, wanted to help? Well, I received the call. When he, when Arvel Looking Horse created that fire, yeah, that was a magical working. And a call went out on, on the astral. Um, he, he established an egregore, a current, a magical current, mm -hmm. right? Those of us who were paying attention heard the message, mm -hmm. right? And I, was, I, I got the message loud and clear. Mm -hmm. It's that you need to come. We need your help. We'll take care of you once you get here. And when I heard that, I was like, I have to go. He used social media. That was one of his tools. <laughs> but he still sent this thing out on the astral, too, you know. Um, I did read it on, on Facebook, I think. Uh -huh. um, the actual written-out request to come. So they, they said you can't, can't have any drugs. Can't, a lot of people ask, well, is marijuana a drug? And they, they said, yes, it is for these, for these purposes. Um, it was, it was the, your conduct had to be very, very proper once you were in the camp. Mm -hmm. they, they had a lot of things that they required of us. Uh, we were not allowed to take pictures once we were in the camp unless we got special permission as a member of the media that mm -hmm. was allowed. Um, I'm not really sure what that was all about. I think there's a very old prohibition against taking pictures because they feel that that steals their spirit yeah um, you were not supposed to act like a crude new age person seeking spiritual guidance from the natives um, that could be a bit rude because they had, in each of the camps, they had a, a, at least one sweat lodge. It's like the church. Mm -hmm. And every night they would, they would be doing a sweat lodge ceremony for these, the water protectors would be out on the line, they would come back and they would purify themselves in the sweat lodge. Mm -hmm. It's like going back to church. So these ceremonies are going on all the time and you're not supposed to take pictures of the sacred fire, you're not supposed to take pictures of the ceremonies because it's rude. Um, so I started, I didn't actually go out on the line to confront the uh, police at any point. Other people were doing that. That was their role. My role was to do support, build wood stoves to the best of my ability, help them build the teepees. So I started working really hard at that. And 
after a hard day's work there, they had these big kitchens and they would feed you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, that had certain requirements too. Like the women and children were the first ones to be fed. They got to the front of the line and all oh, the men wow. respected the, the, them, you know. The elder, elders went first in everything. Um, I had been doing that for a couple of days and uh, I happened to be walking by the sweat lodge I think that afternoon and I saw that they were preparing um, to do a ceremony that night and even though we had been told that we were not supposed to go and ask to do ceremony some spirit or something told me that now was a good time and and so I approached the fire tender and in a respectful and good way I offered him tobacco and I said I really need to sweat can I sweat with you and the fire tender he was a native he he said so what's your name and I told him my name was Wiz and he was really amused at that. <laughs> he thought that was really funny. <laughs> and, and then he told me his name was Mike. And he said, yeah, you can sweat with us. Come back in an hour. And so I was totally psyched, right? Yeah. And uh, to be doing ceremony with the real source. Yes. In their own lodge, in their own way, wow. right? After doing this for 25 years with with you know, people who had learned like four four or five generations away from these source. I'd been doing ceremony with Blackfoot people uh, and and some Lakota, but uh, like I say, it's people that that had learned from people who had learned from who people from who who had learned from the source. So I came back in an hour and there were like 10 or 12 native people there two of which were women which surprised me because it, i was under the impression that these kinds of ceremonies were either all men or all meet female mm-hmm. so this was actually a co-ed ceremony which means that they had evolved to that point their 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 processes their ceremonies are changing um and one of the ways that they are changing is they're opening up to the outside to, and making their ways known to people that are outside the tribe, that are outside the... You don't have to have a certain amount of blood, native blood, to, to do these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spiritual leaders of the current generation are of the opinion that these ways are for all the people, that, that these ways were given to them by spirit, by Wakantanka, to save our whole world, mm-hmm. not just to heal themselves, to heal their own tribe. They're here to heal all of us. Mm-hmm. So in order to heal all of us, they have to make it available to, to us all, including yeah. the teachings, mm-hmm. right? And within the tribes, there, is, there are these certain factions. They're, they're called the traditionalists. They don't think that these things should be shared with the, with the outside. So you have that conflict. Right. But I think the current spiritual leadership is enlightened and thinks that to you know, this should be opened. I mean, this is the age of Aquarius, and the rest of us are exposing our secrets 
from the other right. secret societies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's an overall yeah. so, trend. So, yeah. yeah, so why not them too? Do the traditionalists believe that if they keep it within the, their own um, people that they can save everybody by just doing it themselves? I don't or think the, those work? people are that interested in saving everybody else. Mm -hmm. you yeah. Know? They, 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 they don't forgive the outside mm. people, which, which we'll get to in a minute. There was a forgiveness ceremony that, oh, that took yeah. place. But um, there was a, a woman who, who this, this, this pretty stocky native man appeared. Uh, and he had a lot of personal power I could tell and it, it soon became clear to me that he was the medicine man mm -hmm. and that the guy that I had spoken to that had given me permission the invitation to come was his apprentice <laughs> uh, and of course I'm getting pretty excited by this whole thing and uh, I was watching him I was watching everything very wide-eyed this uh, woman came up to him and she had a bag, a red flannel bag. And she was across the fire on the other side of the fire talking to him very earnestly and he was listening to her and trying to understand her story. And I knew there was a lot of drama going on but I didn't understand really what it was all about. And she handed him the bag and he took the bag. The next thing I know, they say the, the, the fire is ready, the rocks are hot. We're ready to go into the lodge. And, and there are certain technical things that you do when you enter the lodge that you show respect to the four generations. And the main thing you do is you put your forehead on the ground to Grandmother Earth mm -hmm. right at the entrance of the lodge, and you say Matakwiesen, which means all my relations. We yeah. are all related. It's sort mm -hmm. of the magical formula that indicates that you are showing respect for the ways, you know the ways, yeah. you're not a naive person, and they saw me do that, so they knew that I was probably okay at that mm -hmm. point. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 I, and I went in, you move in counterclockwise, or clockwise, sunwise is what they call it, <coughs> inside the lodge, and I went in there and I was in the back. Um, and, the in the first round of the ceremony that's when they call in the spirits and the the medicine man had his drum and he was singing and he was calling in the spirits with the spirit calling song and i happened to know the song i knew the words so i was singing along uh and they they could hear me singing and they knew that i knew the songs uh -huh. and so of course he must be okay uh, so I was accepted inside the lodge. There was a Cheyenne sun dancer in there. There were there were two or three sun dancers in the lodge, including the medicine man. You can tell a sun dancer because they have wounds, they have scars mm -hmm. on their body, usually right about here. Mm -hmm. uh, we can talk about that in a minute about what happens during the sun. It's dance. Like up by the armpit, just for them. Like it's. Um, between the nipple they, and they pierce the skin above the pectoral muscle right about here in the Sundance. Uh, it's a way of 
of sacrificing their body, sacrificing for the people, for the good of the people. Uh-huh. To be a, a, a warrior in the tribe, to be a leader of the tribe, back in the old days you had to Sundance, you gave to mm-hmm. the people, you proved to the people that you wanted to, to help them, serve that, them. Wasn't that one of the seven rights given? That by is the one of the seven rights, yeah. White buffalo given, calf Given woman. to the people by the white buffalo calf woman. And um, so he, the, the medicine man had the scars, the Cheyenne fellow had scars. They... they um, there are a couple of pipe carriers. Pipe carriers are people that have taken on the the responsibilities of, of carrying a personal pipe. Mm-hmm. That's like becoming a priest of the religion, really. Um, there are a lot of lay people, I think, in the religion who are pipe carriers. But once you pick up the pipe, it's a responsibility. It's like if somebody comes to you with tobacco and needs your help, asks for your help or asks for you to heal them or help them you're obligated you have a certain obligation to do that and that's why over the years and years over the 25 years of me being on the path I've been resistant to picking up the pipe because it's such a heavy responsibility I wasn't sure I was prepared for that yeah um, and again it's an ego thing too right. right there are some people who jump on the path at a young age and they think they're entitled and and God walking Tonka's <laughs> gift to right <laughs> to the world and and they want to pick up a pipe but that's ego that's not they're not doing it out of humility like they yet, right? go to the pipe instead of the pipe coming to them mm-hmm. right? yeah 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 it's best like like the eagle feather it's best that the eagle feather is given to you not that you go out and get it right you know buy one <laughs> yeah buy one. <laughs> <laughs> and you can buy pipes too, but uh, yeah. the best way is to make your own, I yeah. guess. Yeah, um, my, my mother-in-law made her own pipe. Yeah. So um, we're in the lodge, and we get to the fourth round of the lodge. Uh, and I guess I should talk about what the Anipi ceremony at the Sweat Lodge is really about. It's about it's a purification ceremony. It's a ceremony. the 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 sweat lodge represents the the womb of the mother. It's the womb of Grandmother Earth. You're actually going back into your mother's womb, and when you go back inside that lodge, it's like going back to that state that you were in before you were born. Mm-hmm. You you're floating in another dimension before coming into this existence. It's comfortable, it's warm, it's moist, you're innocent, pure. So you go into that sacred space, and when you're in that sacred space, you can communicate directly with the spirits, the spirit world, your ancestors. It's like a door is opened to any of those spirits to talk to them easily. Uh And they can come in and talk to you, and you can talk. Everybody in the in the lodge will pray in their own way, sometimes out loud, sometimes to themselves. Um, and then when you come out of the ceremony at the end, you've been purified, you're, you've been reborn, mm-hmm. and you can go on with your life in a fresh way. You know, yeah. you've been transformed. Is yeah. what it's about, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, we were in the fourth round, which is the last round usually. This one actually went another round after this. But in the fourth round, the medicine man started talking about 
that red parcel that the woman had given him outside. And they were right there. He had him with him. And, and he told the story. First of all, he did a prayer in Lakota. He was talking a lot to walk and talk in, in Lakota. And, and when he was done with that, then he explained in English what, what he had figured out. What he had gotten from the, the stones. And, and the story goes that this woman had a dream. She was, she was from the Rosebud Indian Reservation. Uh, which is one of the seven bands of the Lakota. And she had a, had a dream, and the dream was that she was to go out to the local river or lake, and she was and, and 77 stones would make themselves known to her. They would like come up to her at the bank, and she was supposed to pick them up and treat them very reverently and properly in a good way, respectfully. She took each one and she uh, made a prayer tie, uh, which is a square of red felt usually. So, so she wrapped each one with red felt and sprinkled a little bit of tobacco on each one and tied it up in each, each of its, each, so there were 77 of these little parcels in this, okay. in this red bag. The 77 stones gave themselves to her. Uh, the dream said that she was then to give them to her medicine man and that he would know what to do with those. She didn't have any idea. She was just given that task, right? To gather them. To gather them. Yeah. She didn't know why. So she did that, mm -hmm. and she gave them to him. I, I watched her do that. And, and he said that he had determined by talking with the spirits and with Wakantanka that the 77 stones were representatives from the Stone Nation. The Stone Nation is, they're called Ia, the Ia Nation. The Stone Nation is the very oldest and first nation in their, the creation myth. The, the stones, the stone people were the first ones to be created, followed, followed by the water people, or, or the water, but so they're the oldest. They've been around the longest. They've been here for millions of years. They're the grandfathers that come into the lodge. You heat up the rocks outside and you bring okay. them in. They've been uh, brought back to life. They're now red hot like they were when they were born, mm -hmm. right? But since they were born millions of years ago, they've been sleeping. And they've been listening to everything that's going on. They're very wise. They're the wisest yeah. nation, right? So the, the, what he had been told is that these were the representatives of the Ia Nation. And they were joining the 300 other tribes that had already joined the Standing Rock Reservation uh, protest. The, not In addition to the seven bands of the Lakota that had come together for the first time in 100 years, two... 300 other tribes from the United States plus all over the world had come. When you're in the camp, there was a long road. It was called the Road of Flags. And every nation that had come and had representatives in the camp had put up a flag. Wow. There were 300 flags. That's so right? neat. So the, the oldest nation, the Ia Nation, was joining the, the cause. Was that the Ia Wachichu? Yeah, he called them Iowachichu stones. 
And when, when, when I heard that, I was like, why would you call it Wachichu? Right. The, wa- the white, rock white, white people? Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but then the that, that made me look up the meaning of the word, and I discovered that the very old meaning of it is a kind of a revered magical thing. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's it's what he meant. very interesting. And of course, here's this white boy from Seattle in this lodge. And I was just, I was just so blown away by that whole thing and the whole story and just the whole experience. And there were seventy-seven of them, right? Seventy-seven stones to yeah. be put around the perimeter of the camp. They they were to be put around the perimeter of the camp to protect the camp uh, from people who were not supposed to come. They were like. Um, they were like a, a warning system or something like protection yeah and was that some a tradition that they had prior or did this just I'm come not, through i'm not sure of that you it's know a new i thing. don't know yeah. yeah and then the veterans came shortly afterward right yeah um i thought that was interesting that they came right after it's almost like that was yeah well in a uh, week <laughs> so i was there a week that first week, but that was the highlight of my trip, was the being in the sweat lodge and experiencing all of that. When I came out of that lodge, what I'm accustomed to doing is the people line up outside the lodge, and now you're you have a new family. Everybody that you've sweat with is a brother or a sister of mm-hmm. yours from then from then on, mm-hmm. right? We've shared it's something special, and what you usually do is you hug everybody in this line uh, that was what i've been accustomed to doing for 20 years or something and Mm -hmm. so i came out of the lodge and and the the medicine man he's the very first one there and i reached up to hug this big guy (laughs) you know and i was like thank you so much for letting me do this be in your inipi ceremony and he was like he let me hug him though and but I afterward just, he was like <laughs> i discovered that i discovered that's not done right <laughs> what they what they do is they do what's called a hearty handshake mm. <laughs> yeah. uh, part of the reason why it's not done I've discovered is because that they do these sweat lodge ceremonies commonly during the Sundance. And when they're Sundancing, they're giving for the people, they're wounded, their bodies are wounded, and it's painful for them to hug. Oh, yeah. So they sort of have PTSD a little bit about mm-hmm. that. They, if you try to hug them, they remember... Like the tactile mm, memory. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So... Yeah, I learned that lesson. <laughs> um, we we were there for a week, and I left shortly thereafter. We were worried about a blizzard coming, um, and so we drove home. And I thought that that was uh, the end of that. Uh-huh. That was great. I thought it was great. Uh, but having been immersed in a in in a sacred space for a week. It changes you. Yes. And I can't explain what it was really like there. I can try to explain. I can try to convey to you what it was like, but it's very hard to do. If 
if I'm talking to other people that have been there, we instantly know. We talk the same language. We experience, We all experienced it. Yeah. There were so many synchronicities that happened all the time, just continuously deja vu experiences, all kinds of magical things, just yeah. signs of magic happening all the time. Wow. You like know, you were in a, a concentrated vortex. You were like in another dimension spirit. of reality. Yeah. Really. And your vibration uh, changes, right? Like, yeah. It changed us all. And everybody that was there responded to the call. You know, I, I like to describe that. There's an analogy. You remember the movie, The uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where there is a certain number of selected people that start to exhibit these strange behaviors where they're either drawing something that looks like a tower or they start to sculpt them out of mashed potatoes. Yeah. Or, <laughs> Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, the Richard Dreyfus. This means thing. something. Yeah. <laughs> this is important. <laughs> oh, this, this group of people were called on some kind of like spiritual level. Telepathically. Yeah, to come to Devil's Tower. Um, and that's kind of what it was like. That's the, so these people were called. Anybody that showed up was called, right? And they responded. The interesting thing about that, too, is that the, the Devil's Tower from Close mm-hmm. Encounter, that's where the white buffalo calf woman oh. came to the Lakota people. Wow. The, 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 the Devil's Tower was originally a Lakota sacred place. It mm. still is. But it's not on their land anymore. That'd be a we, trip to go back in time to that, and they're playing da 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 da. White buffalo calf woman. She was probably <laughs> That's her there. Song. Yeah. <laughs> she probably came through. <laughs> so I thought this was all. This was great, you know. And when I had been in the camp the first time, I'd heard a rumor that uh, a four-star general, four-star. Army general retired. Was so moved by the whole experience that he had heard about what was happening there, and he wanted to come to the camps with a bunch of veterans to protect the water protectors from the local police. Wow! He wanted to get in front of them, you know, with the idea that these police, who were probably a lot of veterans themselves, would not would think twice before attacking these innocent people, Mm -hmm. they wanted to go to protect them, to protect their protectors. I thought, well, that's, that, that would be a great thing. I'd look, I'd be interested in coming, coming back for that because I'm a veteran too. An actual volunteer army. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, it's a force to be reckoned with. And, and I I was in the air force in the seventies for four years. And, uh, we all took a vow, and the vow was to protect the Constitution and to protect against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And we had a domestic enemy here. We all took that vow, the same vow. So I started to hear about, after I got back, I started to hear, well, there's these veterans that want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to go back, and stand with the water protectors uh, to protect them, sign up. Mm. And they needed 200. So I was one of the first 200 to sign up. Nice. And this is like, 
like within a week of getting back, I suppose, I started to hear about that. Then I heard that the numbers might have swelled, might swell to a thousand, which they did. Then I heard the numbers might swell to two thousand, which it did. Wow. They had a GoFundMe that was raising money to help get the people there. Mm-hmm. They raised over a million dollars. Oh my God. Um, then I heard that they had cut off the signups at two thousand because they couldn't handle. It was too hard to do the administration, the management right. part of it. Because people were scrambling to try to organize this. Yes. They had a million dollars to spend. They had 2,000 people to get there from all over the United States. How are they going to do that? They were going to chart, charter buses, and and they had to do all this in a very quick time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that I was one of the 2,000. And... Uh, the people that had had donated the truck for the for my first trip decided to no, donate the truck for another trip uh and again i was invited to be the driver mm-hmm. uh this time we took more wood stoves we took 20 more wood stoves more more uh, materials for more lodges plus we picked up donations from all over seattle and we just filled we packed that truck to the rafters with donations of all kinds generators sleeping bags tents medicines boxes of medicines foot warmers hand warmers you name it people donated it anything you needed um and we were on the news when we left there's, there were two charter buses full of veterans from, from Seattle. And we pulled out of Seattle and headed east uh, for the second time. And the idea was to get there on December 4th. And on December 4th, we would all gather, all 2,000 of us, and march down the road into the camp which would have been quite a spectacle. We, we took a route that was different from the first time. It was more southerly, and we ended up going into South Dakota to the Cheyenne River in Reservation, where the veterans were sort of uh, meeting first, and then they would all go north. As soon as I got there, that was Eagle Butte, South Dakota. As soon as we got there with the truck, I knew that I had to head north to the camps. I couldn't wait for everybody else. So we just took the truck. I took off. We went through the blizzard north, and we got to Standing Rock December 4th in the morning as the sun came up through the blizzard. And the first thing that struck me about the camp this time was that there were a lot more people and that there was snow everywhere. And I was going to be able to test out whether those tarpies could withhold the, yeah. the, themselves in the middle of the blizzard and in the middle of the snow. I ended up sleeping in the tarpie then, and the tarpies, the tarpies performed well. Not a single one fell down. We, we ended up building 45 or 48 That's of, these, of these lodges and putting wood stoves in them. Not a single one blew down, and they were very warm inside, even when it was way below zero. 
How many if, people could you fit in one? Um, comfortably about six. You could get more in. You could pack more people in there, but usually there are like five or six people in a in one of those lodges. Mm-hmm. Um, so we arrived on the fourth. The, the veterans started trickling in all day. Um, it wasn't organized in any way. We didn't march in as we thought we were going to do. Uh-huh. In the afternoon that day, it was a very sunny day. Lots of snow everywhere, though. And the people that had been there, plus the peop- the, the veterans that, that had gotten there, plus the people that were already there, sort of spontaneously decided to surround the camp by holding hand, hands and creating this huge circle all the way in the, around the entire camp. Which was sort of a ceremonial thing to do. Sacred thing within, sacred, within a sacred circle, right? And as people were doing that, the word started to, to trickle out, started to be received that the Army Corps of Engineers had denied the permit for the Dakota Access Pipeline to be drilled underneath the lake, underneath mm-hmm. the river, underneath the Missouri River. The, the Army Corps had decided that there had to be a, uh, an environmental impact statement done, an investigation before the permit could be given to them. So basically we had won. The, the pipeline had been prevented from being being made under mm-hmm. the under the lake, so there was this huge celebration that took yeah. place. I think now that mm. the timing of that was on purpose. I think the Army Corps of Engineers was forced to do that because of all the veterans showing up that day or threatening to show up that day. Yeah. So not only were two thousand vets arriving that day. Uh, to this huge celebration, but there were about two, at least I would say, two thousand vets on top of that who came in their own vehicles. Nice. So you had all these vehicles arriving all day long. You had four thousand people showing up in this camp, and the camp was kind of unprepared to take care of all these people. But still, it's a huge celebration, and they're not going to turn anybody away, of mm-hmm. course because they asked for these people to come. It was that day was the culmination of the magical working that Orville Looking Horse had done when he established that sacred fire so many months before. Mm -hmm. That sacred fire had been lit for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and manned ever since it had been lit, right? So it was a pretty f- powerful magical working, mm. and then, and then we saw the results of it. I mean, that was the most powerful magical thing I had ever experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Did they do a closing ceremony? No, they didn't close. Still going, right? Uh, I don't. I don't think anybody knew what to do at that point. That night, I planted myself next to the sacred fire. That was sort of the the brains of this the center point of everything and there was just like this huge swirling energies all around me all night long there were fireworks going off there were 
people arriving into the camp cars. It was like it was like Times Square in New York City almost. There were on those avenue of the flags that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. There were cars that were constantly streaming into the camp down that avenue, and I I went out and looked at license plates. There were license plates from every state of the union. Wow. Mm So I went over and I sat at the at the sacred fire. I stayed there for three hours or something like that in the middle of the night and just watched everything and soaked up the energies. And there were three native elders sitting on the bench next to me. They were there the entire time. They were much older than me. They mm-hmm. looked like they might've been in their 80s. Mm-hmm. Very stoic native guys. Uh, one of them had one of those black stereotype Indian hats, mm-hmm. cowboy hat kind of thing uh, that he was very proud of, obviously. And they were watching, the, they were sort of like uh, supervising. And it was very clear that these elders were very much involved in the establishing the whole thing and kind of running it. And, and I just, I watched them for a long time and uh, just felt very privileged to be in their presence. I watched, watched the people arriving and coming up to the sacred fire, and 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 being very respectful, and and they would get down on one knee and offer tobacco to the fire, mm-hmm. and then pray. You, you, that sacred fire, you can't put anything in that fire. You can't throw a cigarette butt, or that's a dis- disrespect. Right. No paper, no trash. Mm-hmm. You can offer tobacco to it. Um. And then after a while, I got up and, and shook hands with each one of those old gentlemen and looked them in the eye and said, thank you very much for this. Yeah. This is just such an honor. It was such an overwhelming honor to be in that space with them at, so that, at, at that moment. This. So then uh, I ended up doing a pipe ceremony with some, some veterans that night uh, in a, a very drafty army tent that they were trying to sleep in, in the middle of a blizzard. And we had heard, when, when I was sitting out at the fire, we had heard that the next day there would be a, a ceremony at the local tribal casino, which was seven miles up the road. And the ceremony would be the spiritual elders of the tribe thanking the veterans for coming. Now that word hadn't gotten out to everybody, all the veterans. It was word of mouth, mm-hmm. and somehow, since I was in the right place, I was at the sacred fire, somehow I had gotten the word. And that was miraculous in itself. That was spirit working right there, because mm-hmm. otherwise I wouldn't have gone to no. this ceremony. I wouldn't have known about that ceremony. Yeah. So the next day, I put on my old veteran's gear that I still had from the 70s. I still had my field jacket and my beret. Mm -hmm. And I put those on with my friend that I drove the truck with. Her name was Adria. Adria's amazing. She she was a paratrooper in the army. She could do anything. And uh, so the two of us somehow got a ride up to the casino seven miles away. And we went in the auditorium there and waited for the elders of the tribe to show up. 
And there were only about 300 of us veterans there. So only 300 of us had heard about this, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, finally the elders arrived. They were on Indian time, which they they don't watch the clock the way we do. Is it like island time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, they, they, I had heard that the elders of the tribe were coming. I didn't know that it was the spiritual elders of the tribe. You know, there's political leaders, and then there's right. the spiritual leaders, right? Cool. This was the spiritual oh, leaders. That's so, cool. so who shows up? Leonard Crow Dog. He's the eldest and obviously the most revered of them. He's a medicine man who made his name as a spiritual leader at the Wounded Knee occupations in the 1970s. And he was much older now. He's been doing ceremonies since the 70s. He was in a wheelchair and he had two big Lakota braids on each side of him behind him, big bodyguards. Mm I remember from the photos. Yeah. And he was obviously the one, the main one that they were revering, you know, the venerated leader. Um, Arval looking horse, the keeper of the pipe, was there. His brother, Ivan, was there, Ivan looking horse. And that's when I learned that Ivan Looking Horse was the medicine man in my sweat lodge ceremony from my first trip. Wow. Ivan Looking Horse, one of the medicine men of the tribe, is one of the spiritual leaders, the brother of the keeper of the pipe. He was the one that I had done ceremony with. He with the 77? The, with the 77 wow. stuff. It's so and, interwoven. Yeah. And uh, Marvin Sparrow was there. Or one of the Sparrow brothers. He's a, a Native American church roadman, a peyote teacher. He was there. A woman named Faith Spotted Eagle. She's a female medicine person leader. Um, so they were they were all they were they were not so much political leaders, but the spiritual leaders of the tribe. And these are the ones that are setting this the the sort of spiritual. Uh, theme or flavor of the tribe now. Yes. You know, I was talking about do they want to keep keep the ways to themselves as the traditionalists of the tribe want or are they of the opinion that these ways are for all the people to be shared with mm-hmm. all the people? Well, these were the leaders here that are de- deciding this, the modern leaders, and these are the ones that want to share, right? So all of them do a speech uh, Ivan does his speech. Arvel does a speech. Ivan, his brother, does a speech. One of the, one of the things that I wanted to do, one of my tasks on my to-do list for my second trip back, was to find out if it was okay for me to tell a story about the seventy-seven stones in the lodge, because the rule usually is that whatever takes place in the lodge stays in the lodge. You right. Don't talk about it with with the rest of the world. I felt uncomfortable sharing it with people unless I knew it was okay. And we have some idea how this ends because we're sharing it with the world right now. But, <laughs> right. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, but go on. <laughs> so somehow I wanted to contact him or find him. I felt drawn. I was going to... If, if I failed to contact him, it, I was going to feel like somehow 
my my journey is unfulfilled. Right. Uh, so he does a speech to the entire group. He's talking about welcoming us and thanking us and whatnot. And for some reason, he starts telling the story about 77 stones. Hmm. And he starts talking about the stone people and how the stone people have joined with the rest of us and how important that is. And, 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 then, he, and then he sort of like pauses for a moment, like something's telling him to say something. And, and he says to everybody, the story of the 77 stones needs to be told to the world. Yay! So you didn't even have to ask. <laughs> he told me that. He told me that. And that's when the moment I knew I could ask you to come on for a second episode. <laughs> <laughs> Wiz, I was wondering, um, Naha taught us a seven, I think it's seven stone protection method. Did you teach her that? No, I don't know about that. Okay, hmm. I should go look that up in my it's probably notes related. because yeah, it's a seven stone protection hmm. method, and I have them in here. I did it when we learned. Well, you know the crystals. The crystals are members of the stone nation. Hmm. Yeah, right? here they are. Yeah. The um, they then opened the floor up to the veterans to speak, and one of the veterans stepped forward. He was dressed in the regalia of a 19th century cavalry officer. He had the hat with the gold braid on it, and he had the officer's bars on his shoulder. Um, and I had seen him before, and I thought that was kind of odd. So he gets up to the mic, and then he starts a speech. And in his speech, he, he says... On behalf of the 7th Cavalry, I am here to and the Army, I am here to apologize to the Lakota Nation for warring on you in the way that we did for a hundred years. We didn't respect you. We've polluted your earth. We've hurt you in so many ways. And we've come to say that we are sorry. We are at your service and we beg for your forgiveness. think the the natives expected it I, I don't think the vets expected this once I heard what was happening I ran over and grabbed my camera and I put it on video mm -hmm. and I videotaped the rest of it mm -hmm. from my point of view where I was standing there were media people up on the stage who were videotaping it from another angle um you can see in their videos, I'm in there with my can holding my camera up over oh, my cool. head like this. Um, then there are about 10 of them, I think, from the 7th Cavalry. I'm guessing they all got down on one knee and they said, we are at your service. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place. I mean, it was just totally quiet tears it was a very moving moment uh, and this, I think this is the moment that people saw on yeah the next yeah. day it just waves went out um, 
I I felt so privileged to be in that spot right now, right then. Ever I, since that day, this has been the background on my phone. Yeah, it's the oh, picture wow. of of what he's talking about. The see, moment. and I'm standing like right back in for yeah. here. So. Wow. Yeah. So um, there's this like silence after that, and then. And then my fri- friend Ivan Looking Horse steps forward and he says, I'm going to sing a song for them. except for the ones that were down on one knee. And then he had his drum, the same drum that he had had in the lodge with me, mm-hmm. that he had been singing the, the Calling Spirit song. And he sang this beautiful song. Um, and it's all captured on my video, wow. that song. And I think it's called the uh, Wiping Away the Tears song. It's a, it's a song of forgiveness. And then he hands the mic to Leonard Crowdog. And Leonard Crowdog said, The ways of life. Today, the seven Calvary. In the beginning of the world, of the beginning of the star, let me say a few words. I will accept the forgiveness World peace. World peace. World peace. peace. We will take a step. Uh, We accept your apology and we forgive. Uh, And then he talked about world peace in the spirit of world peace. Uh, And the whole theme was forgiveness the tribe was the Lakota ways are forgiving what the white man has done to them 
in a couple hundred years. I mean, that's a major thing to forgive something that's like huge. that. And then I got the feeling that they were also forgiving, that, that, that they were feeling apologetic about wiping out the the Seventh Cavalry at, at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing was a forgiveness ceremony, a wiping away the tears ceremony. And uh, after that, they had us all form up in lines, which we were very used to do, doing as veterans. Mm-hmm. And then all these spiritual leaders came through the entire lines of 300 people and hugged every single one of us. So so the the Arval-looking horse and uh, Leonard Crowdog couldn't do that because he was in his wheelchair, but the others came through and hugged all of us, you know. And, and afterwards we felt like we'd been forgiven and we were part of, we were accepted, you know, as family even. Yeah. That is and, so and I beautiful. do. And not only do I feel like I'm family because I was in a sweat lodge, but now I feel like I was in family because I was in that ceremony, in that room. And it's so many the layers. There's so many layers of that forgiveness. Like when you do something bad to someone, or they do it back to you. It's just right. throughout, not just there, but all over. Yeah. Forgiveness. Yeah, they're forgiving the rest of the world. I, I, I personally. The main message that I get from all of this, you know, I'm, I'm a tool of spirit. Yes. And, and I'm conveying the story of the experience for the reason, you know, it's for the purpose of healing the rest of the world. I believe that the Lakota ways can heal the whole world because it's, it's such a compassionate non-ego driven heart driven spirituality mm-hmm. it's respectful of the earth it's respectful of other people it's compassionate it's not ego it's very similar to hindu yogi uh, spirituality in my opinion i see lots and lots of similarities there yes it reminds me of Japanese as well. Mm. Even like at um, the, I was in Hiroshima at the Atomic Bomb Museum, and I went through the exhibit very, very in depth and stayed for a while. But the whole takeaway I got was that the Japanese were apologizing and spreading the message of forgiveness because they believe part of the atomic bombings on their people were because they had done wrong before to the Chinese or to others, and it was the karma coming back. Uh So rather than saying it was them against us, they're wrong, pointing fingers, it was just the message of world peace, and we all have to forgive. We'll talk about that more because uh, there's I've, I've, I'm getting a synchronistic connection to that, the fact that you went there and did that. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that. Um, so I did that ceremony. We come out of that ceremony and, and, and into the rest of the casino. We look out the window and there's a blizzard outside and the snow is just going horizontal outside the wind is blowing about 70 miles an hour we're seven miles from the camp we have no ride my friend my friend friend the female paratrooper she said well we can hike it (laughs) we can hike through this blizzard seven miles back to the camp and i was like i don't think so 
I don't think that would be a wise thing at 60 years old. <laughs> <laughs> With a little I, water I, bottle. <laughs> I am in pretty good shape from and doing... an ice bottle, yeah. <laughs> I'm in pretty good shape from doing yoga, but I wasn't sure I was in good enough shape to do that. And uh, so we went out in the... Um, went out to the gas station in the middle of a blizzard and tried to find somebody that was going down there to hitch a ride with. We eventually found somebody who had chains and four-wheel drive and we drove through the blizzard. We got back into the camp finally and uh, and, I, and I spent the night in one of our tarpies in the middle of a blizzard where the wind is blowing 70 miles an hour and wow. it was below zero. It was the temperature, the chill factor was probably about 40 below. <sighs> And survived that night fairly comfortably. There was a little hole, little there was a little hole under right underneath my cot where the wind was coming in. And the next day, I had to shovel snow and fill up that hole. And the next night was much more comfortable. But but we survived in the middle of that in one of our tarpies, and not a single one of our tarpies blew down. So. The tarpies turned out to be a gift from Wakantanka, I guess. Um, because it was blizzarding so bad, um, we decided that we it was a good idea for us to for the for us to leave. We had to get out. We had to get chains on that truck and get get our diesel truck started in the middle of that kind of cold, and which would. I wasn't experienced with starting a diesel below zero, and we had to we had to put a heater on the block of the motor to get it started, and put the chains on, and try to get out of that camp in the middle of this blizzard. I have pictures of what it was like. It was like white out. You couldn't see, you know, thirty yards away. Um, so we got out. We got out of the camp with the truck and headed back and drove through a blizzard to get home the the heater on the truck was broken <laughs> so we had no heat in the oh, truck no. <laughs> and uh it was below zero driving home uh for days it took us days and i thought that was the end of the story uh turns out i'm going back for a third time somebody donates eight tons of fire logs to take back to the camp the the people that had the truck donated the truck again again i'm asked to drive the truck so i end up going back for the third wow. time do you know nice. when you're leaving oh, this already happened right uh, this happened oh, already. oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh it's now january okay i've been there in november i was in there in december and now i'm going back in january so every month and um so we headed back to deliver these these eight tons of fire logs. It turned out that my friend that had been arrested originally, the one that was my inspiration to go in the first place, mm -hmm. she tells me, she communicates to me on Facebook, and she tells me that she has this ceremonial teepee and that it needs to be returned to its owner. Mm. She doesn't explain why she had it, but it was her responsibility to get it back to its owner. And somehow that ceremonial teepee had ended up on somebody's truck that was going back to Seattle. It went back to Seattle and it wasn't supposed to go to Seattle. Oh no. <laughs> 
So this ceremonial teepee is in Seattle. I'm coming back to Standing Rock. I'm in Seattle. So, gee, I need to go get this ceremonial teepee. It's out on Whidbey Island. It requires me to drive, drive, to take my own pickup, get on two ferries. I have to track down where this house is. I go and I talk to the guy and it's in the garage. So we put it in the back of my truck and I bring it back. We put it in the back of this truck that's gonna to go to Standing Rock along with the, all this eight tons of firewood. So I take the ceremonial teepee, we go back to Standing Rock. We get there, uh, it takes us days to deliver the, the firewood to the proper place. We end up having to leave that in Fort Yates, which is about eight miles away from the camps, I guess. Uh, it's on the Standing Rock Reservation. We're giving them to the, to the, reser to the, to the tribe. Was it as cold at that point? Or? Oh yeah, it was pretty cold. Yeah. And we discovered on the trip that they hadn't fixed the heater, which they said they no. did. <laughs> <laughs> so we're driving around without any heat again. And uh, I had gotten very sick on that last trip. I didn't mention that. I ended up in the hospital oh my gosh, with, from, a, with an um, asthma thermal. attack because of the dealing with the cold yeah. for such an extended period of time. And I told them I wasn't going to go back in that truck unless they fixed the heater. Mm -hmm. They said, yeah, we fixed it. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't fixed. And uh, so we're back there. We delivered, we finally deliver those uh, eight tons of fire logs. Um, I still have this, this feeling, this nagging desire to make contact with Ivan Looking Horse. There's unfinished business between the two of us. Um, I find out that the ceremonial teepee that we need to return is Ivan Looking Horse's ceremonial teepee. Third time. <laughs> Yay! Now this time, we have to take the teepee to his home. And he lives in South Dakota. So, on our way out from, we've, we've, delivered, we've completed our mission, we've delivered the fire logs, we're going home. Mm -hmm. We took a southern route. We went down into South Dakota to to where he lives and we rendezvoused with him in the middle of the night out on the plains lit only by the headlamps of our vehicles mm -hmm. and we transferred the ceremonial teepee from our truck to his vehicle he was very appreciative of getting back his ceremonial teepee um he thanked uh my co-pilot and we were actually bringing home from the camps uh, my friend, the woman, who had been arrested oh, originally. She had been in the camps for three months. Mm -hmm. We were bringing her home to Seattle, so she was also with us. She, was, she, she, had, she had been entrusted with the ceremonial teepee, too. Now, how that yeah. happened, I don't know. Everything seems but, so, so perfectly timed. Yeah, synchronicity yes. just exponentially so yes. i'm very aware of that synchronicity i listen to that that's a sign yeah so what's it telling me it got to where i was gonna he was gonna thank me um and he reached out to shake hands with me and as he as he reached out to shake hands in thanks for the ceremonial teepee i presented him with tobacco Mm -hmm. And I said, we've met before. 
we met in the sweat lodge uh, when the 77 stones made their appearance. We met two, three weeks later when you thanked us for veterans for coming to the camp. I was in that ceremony with you. Mm-hmm. And so we meet again for the third time. And this time I'm asking you to be my teacher. And I'm asking you to show me the ways of the pipe. I'm, I'm ready to pick up the pipe now. I want to do it in a good and respectful way. I want to do it in the proper way. Mm-hmm. I want to learn the proper way from the source. Uh, I would like to know, I would like to be taught the proper way to do the Anipi ceremony, this sweet sweat lodge ceremony, and I also aspire to, to Sundance. And he was sort of taken aback. (laughs) He was sort of surprised by this. And he goes, how old are you? And I said, I'm 61. And he says, you know, you're six years older than me. (laughs) (laughs) When you're asking to be a student. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I know that. And he, he says, you know, this takes a very long time. And I said, yeah, I'm aware of that too. I said, you think about that. You think about it. And it didn't take him very long to think about it. And he said, we need to get to know you better. You need to come back. And so that was the invitation. He's, that's the open invitation that I have now. And wow. uh, that's where we're at. That's where I'm at right now. That's the story that I wanted to tell people and share with them. Mm. Um, and ask for people's prayers that somehow it will be easy or at least that all the pieces will come together so that I can accomplish that trip this summer. I think all I have to do is trust in spirit. Yes. If I trust in spirit, it will happen. Yeah. That's the moral of the story that I wanted to tell. It's called the great mystery because I call it the great mystery because that's one of the names of Wakantanka the great spirit or the great mystery the reason why they call it the great mystery is because they believe that our minds are just not capable of being able to comprehend what wakantanka is what the spirits are what what the dimensions of reality are it's just beyond our abilities um they don't think either that they can prove that these things exist but they don't think that Anybody can prove that they don't. It's a mystery. They respect that mystery. That's that's the core of what it's all about. And I wanted to share that with people. And I think, I think it's it, that's one of the messages that spirit conveyed to me with this whole experience. Yes. That I have this responsibility to share, not only the story, the inspirational story about the existence of spirit, but to share the ways. You know, Frank Fools Crow, the ceremonial chief, he said, these ways are for all the people, not just for them. And that that these ways can save the rest of us. Yes. And your role is transmitting all of that, right? Like you said, the vessel you're sharing. I need to share. And, uh, you know, to the extent that Ivan can give me insights that I can share, too, I would like to learn what I can. And. 
and then come back and, and share these ways. Yes. Yeah. And I find it really interesting when you said at the beginning, comparing your academic lectures versus the way you and you right. did it in March, just a few days yeah. ago, how it's more of that storytelling tradition because exactly. the oral tradition is how they, uh, the that's the original yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you're already uh, doing it without even planning. Yeah. yeah. The other thing too is, you know, I have these, these other uh, paths that I follow, the hermetic tradition too, and, and yoga, the Eastern tradition. I'm interested in the unity of all of these yeah. things, you know, the way they Finding all... the heart. That's what you're doing too. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they all overlap. They're, they're all talking about the same things, mm-hmm. the same themes. They're just using different techniques and different words. Yes. And, I kind of look at it, the sources here, and these are all the paths. And you're just yeah, like the rays of the sun coming down. Yeah. The, the other thing too that I've learned recently that seems to be a theme is that the technical aspects of things, the details about how to do stuff, uh, saying the right words when you're doing ritual, mm-hmm. making the right actions, all of these things are relatively unimportant. Yeah. The most the thing that's really important is the intent of the operator, whether they're uh, sincere, whether they're humble, that's what what is really important in a working, mm-hmm. a magical working. Mm-hmm. It's not the details. The you technicality. Know, you can't screw up a ceremony by mis- by mispronouncing a word or saying something out of order or something like that. That's like yeah. when you were talking about being a healer when you were a child, before anybody had taught you Reiki, just knowing... Yes, like the more pure you are, the more powerful. Yeah. Even I run this um, dance competition. That's the event that I was coming back from. And now the levels are getting so um, (laughs) high that the techniques are out of this world. It's like in Mm. ice skating when they went from the single axle to now they're at Mm. quadruples. And people are doing such technical great things and artistic and presentation wise like but the it's violin. the people who have that additional element the invisible the x factor that spirit that's flowing yeah through them, yeah that's who wins because they're not their techniques it just it's not as important right as that magical element and it's not what they're focused on or at least they make you think that's not what they're focused right. on <laughs> they make it look easy yes it's yeah. something that you can't really it's just the more open you are the more your pond is flowing that then it becomes obvious. Yeah. There's two more, two other things I want to say. Sure. Uh, I went to the sacred fire one night at the camp. And it was the middle of the night. And like I said, they burn 24 hours, seven days a week. But they're not always manned. Somebody might check, check, check up on it, you know. Mm-hmm. Go, go away, do something, come back, and make sure it's still going. And, there wasn't anybody there, and uh, so I I offered tobacco and I went down on my knees and called in the spirits and prayed and 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 something told me that I needed to gather some of the ash from the sacred fire. And I was told that it was a good thing; it wasn't disrespectful. I was good doing this in the proper way, for proper reasons, right? Mm-hmm. So I took some ash from the fire uh, sort of as a relic 
maybe something that could be used in ritual, something that would connect us back to the spirit, you know, yeah. to the to the magical working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went back to the truck to put it in the truck. When I put it in the truck, I closed the truck door, and it's middle of the night, it's dark, out on the North Dakota prairie in the middle of a sacred prayer camp. <laughs> and out of the darkness came this young native woman. She was probably about 20, 21 years old, very young, very pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she started talking to me, and she, she was asking me. It was the Backbone uh, campaign truck. It had the big logo on it. and mm-hmm. She was asking me what we were doing, what, what that was all about, and I was explaining the activist group that owned the truck and what we did. And, and she was talking about what she was doing and how she was supporting the youth council for the tribe and how, how they were trying to find good role models for the, for the kids to grow up mm-hmm. with. And, uh, she seemed like she was a, a spiritual leader or being trained to be one or mm-hmm. she spoke very eloquently mm-hmm. for her age and I was really impressed by her by her she had an aura around her mm-hmm. that I've seen before mm-hmm. with with people who have a magical spirit uh and something prompted me to tell her my own feelings that I felt like I really respected the Lakota ways and I felt that their ways could save us all. And I, and I said that Frank Fullscrow had been my spiritual inspiration for years, for about 25 years, uh, and that I, that I carried his book with me most places, Wisdom and Power, and mm-hmm. I, I had it back in the camp at the, that moment in my teepee. And she looked at me very solemnly for a couple moments, and then she said, Frank Fool's Crow is my great-grandfather. Oh, wow. wow. And she said, my name is Wakinyan. Wakinyan is one of the spirits of Wakantanka. It's a female spirit, very big, high spirit. Uh, <laughs> of course, I had to hug her at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was like, oh my. I have her phone number. <laughs> I have. I've been texting her. Uh, She told me, Frank Fool's Crow's great-granddaughter told me that the spirit of Frank Fool's Crow is in me. Wow. That's beautiful. (gasps) Yeah. I didn't get a chance to share that. That's beautiful. I'm glad you shared it. I'm glad you shared all of this. Uh, This has been a really special episode. The other thing is uh, that I wanted to share something that I didn't share in the class the other day and that's mm-hmm. the words of of Orville Looking Horse that I continue to hear continue to feel the need to share and what he said is we all have to have hope and we all have to believe in spirit if we have hope and we believe in spirit we can all create miracles and we can end it there thank you very much beautiful
absolutely beautiful. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing all of this and for going through this um, journey on behalf of us all like a, a shaman does, you know, because not everybody can go on the on the vision quest or has the stamina or the or the desire to go on the vision quest. So one from among us has gone through it to share it with the rest of us. So thank you very much. Speaking of stamina, you know, I went to the Standing Rock for three times. I was in pretty good shape, I think, at, at the beginning. But then I ended up in the hospital mm -hmm. at one point, and uh, I still feel like I'm kind of recovering from yeah. the, whole, the whole trip. You went through it's an like, ice dance. Not only, <laughs> not only was it uh, spiritually demanding, but it was physically demanding. Yeah. I feel like I paid a physical price. You look like you're in really good shape. Well, maybe I'm coming back a little bit, mm -hmm. recovering a little bit. I've, mm -hmm. I've really felt like it was all taken out of me for a while. You yeah, know, but your energy, you gave out a lot. Right? But maybe, you know, maybe doing these classes and sharing it, these things and talking about it, it's therapeutic. It back. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Healing. It's good. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing everything. Well, thank you so much. It's my obligation. And thank you for hosting. We're, we're, yeah, for those of you, you listening, we're here at Lindsay's home, and uh, she's created a sacred space for us, and we're surrounded by crystals and sacred things. <laughs> and uh, Cats. And cats. <laughs> <laughs> and we're sit sitting in half lotus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we're all you yogis. You have we your can, cat yeah, shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Wiz Garber, for being our guest on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast tonight. Thank you to the Lakota peoples for allowing your traditions to be shared with the world. Thank you to Lindsay Kimura for being our co-host for tonight's episode. Thank you to Susumu Ueda and his father and the other monks at Jofuku Inn Temple on Mount Koyasan for the music you're hearing right now. Thank you to Tangerine Dream for the album Ricochet, which was used for the Transformations and Footnotes segment. Thank you to Camille and Kennerly, who played the harp leading into and out of the interview. And most importantly, thank you to the Esoteric Nerd listening to this podcast. Until next time. Good night.